Hey, welcome to the Steamboat Christian Center podcast, where our greatest goal is to love God and love people. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us on social media or at steamboat.church. We're so glad you joined us today. Let's jump into this week's message. Welcome! Welcome back! It is so, so, so good to see all of you. It has been a long time, hasn't it? Too long, amen? Amen. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm just so glad to be here. I, I'm going to be honest right up front. I am nervous. I haven't spoken in front of a live person in eight months. So I'm a little nervous. So will you, be with, will you hang with me this morning? Are we cool? Will you laugh at my dumb jokes? Give me an amen or two. All right. I hope so. I hope so. But more than my nervousness, what I feel uh, is, is pride. I am so, so proud of this church. And uh, I'm grateful that we have stuck together as a family through all of this and that we have uh, worked together in helping our community. I, I, someday we'll be able to share all the things that we've done over the last eight months together in helping our community. Um, we have given tens of thousands of dollars in benevolence help to people who are hurting right here in Steamboat, people who needed rent money, people who couldn't make it, who had lost their jobs, people who needed a bus ticket to get home. We have been able to help every one of them, and it's because of your faithfulness. We, we gave away flu shots a few weeks ago to help our community be healthier. We have been able to support all of our missionaries. We have 42 missionaries, and we were able to help support them and, and do some incredible things. And so I can't wait to share that with you. And again, I'm just proud of how we have stayed committed to loving God and loving people through probably one of the most stressful and difficult seasons that any of us have seen in our lifetimes. Amen? Amen. And, and, and boy, I'll tell you what, if you didn't believe in the devil before this pandemic, you sure can't deny him now. Amen? We have seen too much. We've seen too much hopelessness and too much sickness and too much chaos and destruction and division for us to not believe that there is an evil presence in this world. That, that is absolutely true. And that's partly why we're in this series that we, we started a few weeks ago. We're in part three today of a series that we started called Not Today, Satan. Why don't you say that with me? Not today, Satan. And, and I, hopefully this has been helpful for you. We've um, been reminding ourselves that there is more to this world than what you and I can see with our eyes. That there's a lot more going on than what we can see with our eyes. There is this physical world that we live in. But there's also a spiritual world. And uh, uh, in Ephesians chapter Six, the Apostle Paul kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit on this for us. And uh, he basically lets us know that there is a battle, there is a war being waged in the spiritual world right now. And that we are in sometimes get caught in the crossfire of that and that we can either be involved in it or we can ignore it. Um, look at what he says here in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 6. He says, for our battle is not against flesh and blood. Well, I'll tell you what, that's not what we think in America right now. We think our battle is against Democrats and Republicans, against conservatives or liberals, or maybe your, your battle is with your boss, or maybe your spouse, maybe you're sitting next to someone and you've been thinking, they're your problem. Paul says, no, no, no. He says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Now, that's hard for those of us who live here in the 21st century to kind of wrap our minds around. This is kind of, really? But this is what the Word of God tells us. 
that there's stuff going on. There's a battle going on. And that you and I have an enemy. And he has a name. It's Satan. And he hates us. And he hates God. And he has a mission. And his mission is simple. That is to kill, steal, and destroy everything that matters to the heart of God. And, uh, and therefore, you and I need to wake up to that a little bit. We need to be a little more aware of that and be aware of how he works. And In fact, look at what Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples, said this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He said, stay alert. Be watchful. Watch out. For your great enemy, the devil, he's out there. He's prowling around, he said, like a roaring lion, looking for someone that he may devour. Now that's kind of sobering, and those are some kind of scary verses. And even though it's Halloween weekend, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to get you scared. I want you to be aware. In fact, the truth is, you need to know this, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no reason to be afraid of the devil. That's the truth. There is no reason to be afraid of him. Uh, Peter said this. He said, the devil goes around like a roaring lion. Look at that. Like a roaring lion. That doesn't mean that he is a lion. He just acts like one, right? And one of the things that we have to remember is that when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, he defanged and declawed and defeated Satan once and for all time. Amen? Amen. He, Satan no longer has the power or the authority over this world. Jesus defeated him. But Peter said this, though. He also said this, and this is inter interesting. He said, the devil is looking for someone that he may devour. Now, I looked at that this week, and I realized that the key word in that is may. May, that's a key word. Um, when I was in the second grade, Back in Craig, Colorado, Sunset Elementary, um, I learned a valuable grammar lesson. Um, during class one day, um, I realized I had to go to the bathroom. And not just an average, regular, hey, I might need to go to the bathroom. I needed to go now. You ever had, you know, what I'm talking about? Right. You don't want to talk about that, but that's true. It happens. And so I, I raised my hand quickly. And uh, my teacher, um, her name was Mrs. Guffey. How many, how many of you remember your second grade teacher's name? That's pretty sharp, isn't it? Well, okay. Mrs. Guffey's not a hard one to forget. She was a tough, tough teacher. And uh, she says, yeah, Troy, what do you want? And I said, Mrs. Guffey, I said, can I go to the bathroom? And she said, I don't know. Can you? And I said, well, I hope I can. And she's like, well, I, you hope you what? And I said, I hope I can go to the bathroom. And she's like, well, Troy, I really hope you can go to the bathroom too. So, can I? Can I go to the bathroom? Is that all right? She's like, can, can you do what? I said, can I go to the bathroom? And she's like, boy, Troy, I don't know. Can you? We're right back where we started. So I, I, by now, I was about to burst. I mean, I'm telling you, I became afraid that I was about to go to the bathroom right there at my desk in front of everyone, man. It would have been a disaster. And I think she saw the terror in my eyes. I think she saw the confusion, and so she explained herself. She said, Troy, are you, are you asking permission to go to the bathroom? And I'm like, yes. She's like, oh, okay. She said, the problem is, is that you're at, you've been asking me if you can go to the bathroom. That's a question of ability. And I assume that you're a young man, you're a healthy young man, you, a young boy, you, you can probably have the ability to go to the bathroom if you need to. 
I was nodding my head. I didn't understand. She says, I think what you really want to ask me for is permission to go to the bathroom. I'm like, yes. She's like, all right. Instead of asking, can I, you should ask, may I go to the bathroom? So I kind of, light bulb went on. I raised my hand. I said, Mrs. Guffey? She's like, yes. I said, may I please go to the bathroom? She's like, yes, you may. And I got up and ran out of that room, man. And I'm going to tell you, in spite of the little Abbott and Costello who's on first routine that we just went through, that was the greatest bathroom break of my life. <laughs> Come on, that felt good. I remember. So here's my point. My point is, is that Peter said that Satan was looking for someone that he may devour. In other words, um, he needs our permission to devour us. He needs our permission to eat our lunch, right? I mean, think about it. Now, of course, most of us would never consciously give him that permission. But you and I, whenever you and I step outside of the will of God for our lives, whenever you and I sin, we, by proxy, are giving Satan permission to mess with us. That's how it works. Did you know that? Are you talking? Are we still angry about the last eight months? Did you know that? No? Okay. All right. Good. Well, that's the thing is, and I realize, and I think that a lot of Christians are just not aware of or maybe ignorant of how Satan works. And so that's why we're doing this series, and we've been talking about certain characteristics and uh, approaches that Satan has to mess with us. Two weeks ago, for example, you can put this up on the screen there, Satan, we talked about how Satan is the deceiver who attacks our minds with his lies. Satan is constantly attacking us and, and, and lying to us and twisting the truth about who you and I are and about who God is and about what God has said. He loves to mess with us that way. We also last week talked about how Satan is the accuser. He is the accuser who attacks our hearts with his constant accusations. He is constantly throwing his guilt and shame and condemnation on us to keep us down and to keep us thinking that we just don't have anything to offer in this world. Now, this week we're going to look at another characteristic, and I want to just be honest with you. This is going to be a little tougher because this one's personal. The first two we were kind of blaming on him, but this one's on us a little bit. This week we're going to see that Satan is the destroyer who attacks our will with pride, with our pride. In other words, he loves to use our pride to destroy us. He loves to turn that on us and destroy things in our lives. Now before I get into that, um, I just want to make a confession. Um, when I first became a believer and walked with the Lord, I, I began to, I kind of believe that the devil will only attack you and I when we're vulnerable or when we're weak. You know, kind of like lions do. When they attack water buffalo, they kind of pick out the weak ones, the slow ones, the young ones, the sick ones, right? And so I just believe that that's how the devil, he messes with us when we're weak or vulnerable. But over the years and the older I've gotten, I've learned that he also loves to attack us when we are confident and when we are strong. Now this is interesting. If you're here this morning uh, or maybe you're watching online and, and you, things are good in your life. You're in a good place right now in your life. Your, your business is rocking. The cash is flowing, man. Everything's rolling. Relationships are awesome. Every, you're just riding high and that's where you are and, and you have no worries. Let me just tell you, be careful. Be careful. Why? Because it's when you're on top that you're often most vulnerable. This is true. Um, why is that? Well, because one, you're not alert. We in America are not aware of Satan's works 
because we've got too many good things going on in our lives and we're not aware of it and we don't pay attention that there's an there's a enemy out there after us. And so we're not alert. We're not paying attention to it. Plus, Satan loves to take out the big dogs. He loves it as we move our way up the ladder and get to the top and he wants to pull that rug out from under us so that when we fall, we take a whole bunch of people with us. He loves that. A great example of this is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And of course, I'm talking about King David. King David, uh, it's interesting. Satan didn't attack David when he was a nobody. He didn't really mess with David when he was a nobody. Instead, he waited for David to reach the height of his power, the height of his popularity, before he set his sights on taking David out. Now, you might remember that David was once a, uh, just an ordinary shepherd boy. And then one day his father asked him to, to go. There was a battle going on. His nation was at war with the Philistines. And he asked David to take some supplies to his brothers who were fighting in the battle. And when David arrived at the battlefield, he didn't see a battle. Instead, he saw an empty field with a big, oh, ugly giant sitting in the middle of it. And this giant was out there just hurling insults and, and threatening God's people. And they were terrified. They weren't doing nothing. They were just watching and shaking in their boots. Well, with a single shot from David's sling, David took that giant out and he rewrote history books, man. Uh, he, overnight, David became a sensation. I mean, he, he was a war hero. He was anointed king of Israel. Um, women, this is interesting, women wrote songs about David. They, they wrote these songs about his power and his prowess. And every time David came into town, they would come out and greet him in song. Now, I thought about that this week, and I realized that my wife is a, is a music, musician and a songwriter. And she has never, <laughs> she has never written a song about my power and my prowess. And I thought, maybe this weekend I could preach a real good sermon. And I could preach really good. And if I preach really good, I'll come home today. I'll drive home. I'll pull into the garage. I'll walk into the house, and my wife will be standing there. And there's song in her heart, just singing about my godliness, my righteousness, my power, my strength, and anything else that turns her on. <laughs> you think that's going to happen? No. Probably not. A guy can dream, amen? <laughs> amen. Well, here's the thing. Um, I want you to get this. It, the point is, is that if you know that David, he, he, they sang songs about David. They sang songs about David when he was at the height of his popularity and at the height of his power. And this is when David commits his biggest sin, makes his biggest mistake because of pride. Now, some of you listen to this, you, you know David's story. You're just like, wait a second, wait a second. David's biggest sin was because of lust, right? It was lust that led him to commit adultery with Bathsheba. Others of you that are super smart, you'd go, no, no, no. It was murder. David's biggest sin was murder. He had Bathsheba's husband killed by putting him on the battlefront there. And both of those are kind of true, but I would suggest to you that if you and I dug a little bit deeper beneath the surface, we would find that the root sin that led to the adultery and led to the murder was actually pride. It was pride that started those dominoes to fall. But here's the reality that I want to talk about here today. And that is, is that David's greatest sin, David's greatest failure hadn't even happened at this time. 
Some of you are saying, wait a second, adultery, murder, those are pretty big. How do you beat those things? Well, let me explain. Uh, four people died as a result of David's adulterous affair. Four people. And if you know the story, you know that the baby that they had together died right after childbirth. You know that David's two sons, Amnon and Absalom, both died as a result of this. And of course, Uriah, her husband, was killed and died as well. So four people died because of that. But in the story that you and I are going to look at today, which happened after Bathsheba, we're going to see that 70,000 people died because of King David's sin of pride. Now, some of you Bible scholars are going, where, where is that at? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 is a little story that gets often overlooked. Um, and in fact, right at the beginning of this story, we're told what's going on. Verse 1, check this out. 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 says this. Satan rose up against Israel and he incited David to take a census of Israel. Now, um, this is the only passage I know of in the Bible that connects Satan to David. This is the only time I see where we see Satan lurking around David. And again, this is happening not when David is weak, not when David is down, but when he is confident and strong and at the top of his game. In fact, if you will go to the previous chapters before this, in chapters 11 through 20, you will see that David is on a roll. I mean, he is on a, he's rocking and rolling, man. In fact, uh, chapter 11, we see that David is anointed king of Israel. Then in chapter 12, his mighty men join him. And in chapter 13, they go out and they recapture the Ark of the Covenant that had been stolen from Israel by the Philistines, and they get it back, which is pretty big, right? In chapter 14, we see David marrying a bunch of women. I don't, I'm not going to go into that right now. In chapter 15, we see that David and the mighty men bring the Ark of the Covenant Back to Jerusalem, back to its rightful place, which was a huge, huge day in the history of Israel. In chapter 17, we see that God makes a covenant with David. He makes him a promise that one of his children, one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. Of course, God is talking about his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, right? That's prophetically what he's talking about. Then in chapters 18, 19, and 20, we see David defeat the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Philistines, and the Syrians. All of his enemies he wipes out. I'm telling you, this is good times for David. At this point in his life, David's little, uh, you know, his favorite song on Spotify is that song by Queen. You know, I can just picture him working out in the morning to this song. We are the champions, my friend. Bow, bow, and we'll keep on fighting to the end. Down, 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 down. We are, come on everybody, we are the champions. Okay. <laughs> we haven't had church in a long time. I got to get that out of my system. But uh, that's it. David, he was rocking. He was on top of his game. And this is when Satan comes to him. This is what the Bible says. It comes to him. And Satan kind of talks to him this way. I have a feeling that he's like, hey David, well you're pretty, you're pretty powerful right now, boy. You got it going on, man. You have defeated a lot of kings and a lot of kingdoms, man. I mean, never before has anybody had so much success in such a short time. David, let me ask you a question. How, how many people do you think you're in charge of right now? How many people you think you have under you? David's like, I don't know. 
Devil's like, you know what, David? You should find out how many people are under your rule right now. At least for posterity's sake, you know? You should find out. You should do a census. And David's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I need to find out how cool I am right now, how big time I am. Let's do a census. Now, you may hear that and you may, boy, that, that sounds harmless enough. I mean, what's wrong with taking a census? Well, nothing. There was nothing sinful or wrong about taking a census. The issue was the motive. What was David's motive in doing this? And so, you know, depending on how you grew up or what your background in church is, you know, some, some faith persuasions, it's all about the outward actions. It's all about how you look and what you act and what you do. But to God, you, you need, the God of this Bible, what's most important to him is what's going on in your heart. Our motives matter to God. Now, you may not know this, but uh, Moses, Moses took a census of the nation of Israel every year. Every year he took a census, but his motive was completely different. Moses, this is interesting, he would give every male over the age of 20 a half a shekel, which is about, I don't know, a couple weeks wages of, of, of money, which is enough to go buy some groceries. That's considerable. And he would give each one of them a half a shekel, and this, shekel, this half shekel was known as atonement money. It was known as ransom money. Let me explain. By giving everyone money... Moses was reminding everyone that God had redeemed them from slavery. That God had paid a ransom to get them out of Egypt and to love them and bring them into their promised land. That they were valuable. And Moses, he would every year, he would tally the amount of how much money they gave out. And then he would announce the number of those whom God had set free. And then the nation of Israel would have a big giant celebration and people would rejoice and give thanks to God for what he had done in their lives. So the difference between these two senses couldn't be bigger. For example, Moses' census was all about God. It's all about giving glory to God and what God had done. But David's census, David's census was all about David. It was about Man being glorified. And boy, I'll tell you what, that is the root of pride. Pride is when we are elevating ourselves above God. And that is heartbreaking to God. And more than that, it's disgusting and repelling to God when we do that. Now, one of the interesting things about pride is that um, it's hard for us to see it in ourselves. But it's real easy for us to see it in other people. Amen? Amen. I mean, it's, we can smell it a mile off when there's a little pride issue in there. Uh, case in point, um, in this story, um, there's a fellow by the name of Joab. If you know the story, you know Joab was one of David's uh, good friends, and he was a big supporter of David. But Joab instantly saw what this census was really about. And he tried to downplay it. He tried to temper it a bit. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 6, David had asked Joab to help do the count. And this is what it says. It says, but Joab did not include the tribes of Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. In other words, Joab left Benjamin and Levi out of the count. Why? Because he didn't want David's head to get too big. He was trying to protect them. He was trying to downplay this. 
In addition to that, Joab isn't the only one who knew and saw the wickedness in this endeavor. In verse 7, it says this, This command was also evil in the sight of God, and so he punished Israel. And when you read the rest of this story, you'll see that a plague broke out upon the nation, and 70,000 people died simply because of David's pride. Unnecessarily. Now, you, check this out, you could make the case biblically that David's sin of pride, which is an internal thing, was more damaging than his sin of adultery. You and I get the tendency to think that something on the outside, like adultery or murder, is worse or stealing. But sometimes those sins of the heart are worse. Um, In fact, I believe, think about this, David paid dearly for that adulterous affair. I mean, his family was never the same. There was a lot of collateral damage to that. But I believe that David knew that his sin of pride was much more damaging. In fact, the evidence is here. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. You might remember David confessed his sin to Nathan the prophet. And this is what he said. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And fast forward to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 8. When he sinned due to his pride, David added an adjective to his confession. He said, I have sinned greatly by doing this thing. I have hurt a lot of people. Wow. Here's here's the takeaway for today. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down or put this in your heart. Here it is. You are never more vulnerable to the enemy than when you are full of pride. Now, we don't think about that a lot. We think that we're vulnerable when we're out at the bar or we're doing stupid things. But you are never more vulnerable than when you are full of pride. You and I are never more vulnerable to Satan than when we're prideful. Now, like I said at the beginning here, um, as children of God, we do not need to be afraid of the devil. He can't mess with us unless we give him permission. But when we allow pride to lead us and guide us, We are opening ourselves up in a huge way to our enemy to come in and destroy things in our lives. And he will do it. He will not miss that opportunity. Um, In fact, uh, Proverbs chapter 16, uh, Solomon, David's son, I think through personal experience wrote this line. He said, Proverbs 16 verse 18, he said, pride precedes destruction. Pride precedes destruction. An arrogant spirit appears before the fall. It destroys things. Pride destroys things. It destroys our friendships. Pride destroys marriages. What marriage, what divorce didn't have pride crop up somewhere in the midst of that, right? It, uh, it destroys our credibility. Pride destroys our ability to be a leader, right? A good leader. Um, pride, worst of all, destroys our intimacy and our connection to God. Because pride always pushes God away from us. He is repelled by it. Check this out. Proverbs 3 verse 34 says this. This is sobering. Look at this line. God has no use for prideful people. No use for a person who is prideful. It's interesting to see how God reacts and responds to pride. 
It's, it's almost out of character in some ways, but in some ways it's totally him. Uh, in James chapter 4, um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about pride. And in this chapter, it's interesting, he uses several military terms to describe what's going on when pride is in our life. Look at this. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it very simply says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Now before I go on, let me just stop here and look at this verse. It says, God opposes the proud. The Greek word for opposes in this spot right here is a military term. It's a term that they would use in the military. It means to bring the full force of an army against. Let me redefine this word. In other words, God opposes us. Whenever you and I operate out of pride, God is ready to bring the full force of his power against us. He looks at our life and he sees the direction and the things that we're into and he's like, I'm putting a stop to that. That is strong language. That's strong. He says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. James says submit. Now submit is another uh, 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 military term. In the Greek, the word submit means one of the definitions is to voluntarily fall under the one who ranks higher than you. To put yourself under the one who has a higher rank. Now maybe that's why James says, submit yourselves then to God. Because there is no one who ranks higher than God. Amen? He is the Almighty. Now James goes on in verse 7, and he gives us an answer. He says, I want you to resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now again, this word resist is a military term. It's simple. It means to fight back, to push back, to, to, to pressure, to push, to fight. And the question you and I might have is, is, how do we fight the devil? How do we resist him? How do we fight him? How do you do that? I can't see him. I, I'm not always sure what to do. Do I use kung fu? Do I, you know, what do I do? Here's the thing. James would say it is the opposite of what you think you should do. And here's the answer to how you fight the devil. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, you're not catching this, but listen. He says, when we resist the devil, we resist him, not by fighting him, but by running to God. That is our best offense and defense. We run to God. You and I assume that to resist the devil, we need to fight. We need to run up to him and get in his face and kick him in the shin and, you know, wherever else we can, kick him and do whatever we can to fight him and confront him. But Jesus would say, no, 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 do the opposite. Run to God and then your enemy will run away. He don't want nothing to do with him. He will flee. You're not getting that like I I feel it. But verse 10, check this out. James gives us the key to the whole thing and how we deal with this. He says this very simply. Humble, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. That lift you up is a military term, by the way. It means in the Greek to exalt in victory. To be lifted up in victory as a conqueror. Wow, that, that's fascinating. In other words, when you and I humble ourselves before the Lord, our God scoops us up in his arms and he puts us up on his shoulders in celebration. Yeah, that's right. Amen. That, that we have victory. 
when we run to him. He carries us around in victory. I want you to think about this a little bit. What I said earlier, I said that you are never more vulnerable. You are never more open to an attack by the enemy than when you are full of pride. But you are never more close. You are never more protected. Write this down. You are never closer to God than when you are humble. When you are humble, God brings you to his chest. He picks you up in his arms and he carries you and you are in a good place. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, when I was thinking about this this week, I was wondering why is it that God chooses to bring his full force of power to oppose the proud? Why does that get his hackles up? Why is he so, that just really gets him. Why is that? Why is he so forceful against pride? I think the answer is obvious. Um, um, Maybe it's because way back in the beginning, before the creation of the world, um, God had created some angels. We talked about this. He created the archangels, one of which was named Lucifer. And Lucifer's pride caused a civil war in heaven. Heaven is this place of peace and of joy and of everything that you want. And Lucifer's pride ripped it apart, tore heaven up. In fact, God had to cast Lucifer and a third of the angels out of heaven. Man, this is, this is crazy. And, and, and a few weeks ago, we talked about how Lucifer let his pride destroy the peace that was in heaven. And you can read a little bit more about this if you want. In Isaiah chapter 14, we find out what happened. In fact, in that chapter, there's something in there that's funny. Satan makes five statements. They're known as the five I will statements of Satan. And he said these things right before he got cast out of heaven. In verse 13, look at what Satan says. Listen to how he talks. He says, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Pretty, pretty cocky there. I, he says, will set my throne up on high. I'm going to put my throne up higher than anyone else's throne. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, he said. Pride. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. And look at this last one. And I will make myself like the most high. Wow. How prideful is that? The creation elevating itself over the creator in its face. In his face. He's like, I am going to be higher than you, God. Lucifer was all about himself. All about what he thought and what he wanted. I will. I will. I will. Contrast that to Jesus. Jesus was always about what God wanted. Jesus was not I will, but thy will. Thy will. In fact, you might remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying there and uh, he knows what's about to happen. He knows that he's about to be arrested and uh, beaten and crucified. He knows that he is about to suffer more than even words can begin to describe. It was going to be bad and he knew it. And yet look at what he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. He says, Father, if you are willing, I want you to see the vulnerability in Jesus If you are willing, God, please remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Thy will. You know, um, Bible scholars look at this and they see this this is paramount. 
all of God's plans throughout the centuries of saving you and I, of redeeming us, hinged on Jesus making the choice to go through with this. And he knew what was on the other side of that choice. It was, it was brutal. And he, in humility, said, thy will, thy will. Man, I mean, I want you to think about this. Think about this. Um, Jesus' humility saved the world and defeated Satan. I mean, if he did not humble himself and, and put aside what he wanted, it was clear he didn't want to go through this. But if he didn't put that aside, this would have been a disaster. But he put it aside. He humbled himself. And it saved the world and defeated Satan. My friend, humility is powerful. Some people look at humility as weakness. If you're going to be humble, I'm, you know, people that are always telling you their opinion and you're like, you just listen, you know, they're just, they're, they just think that they're more powerful by telling you what they think and what I think should be done and what this is what, and it just, and humility appears to be weakness, but it is actually powerful. Paul said this, think about this. The apostle Paul said, it is in my weakness that I am actually made strong. It is actually in my weakness that God can be made strong through me. Wow. It is when you and I realize that we need God that we are at our strongest. Wow. So in the same way, I suggest to you that our humility defeats Satan and it saves our world from destruction when we walk in humility. Amen? Amen. Amen. Satan wants your pride to say, I will. I will. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. This is what I want. But you and I, we defeat Satan when we humbly, humbly say to God, thy will. Satan loves to attack us, I think, when we're prideful because he knows that we're easy game. Why? Because God is nowhere near us when we're prideful. Our pride pushes God away. And Satan jumps right in. He's like, oh, this is easy pickings right here. But our humility draws God near us and our enemy flees. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We will overcome our enemy through humility. Amen? Amen. 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 I want to pray for you. I hope that encouraged you. Would you bow your hearts and heads with me as I just conclude this series on, on our enemy. Father, um, we just thank you for your word. Um, again, um, many of us are kind of blind to evil and the depths of evil in our world. And we just don't see it. We don't know how it's going to go. And, and here you are. You, you peel the curtain back and you tell us what's happening. And we can see wisdom. And we see that, um, that we are lied to. That many of us are walking around under some lies. And I just right now, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke the enemy through the authority that he has given. God has given me in the name of Jesus. I rebuke him from lying to our people. There are people that have been lied to about who they are. And about who you are, God. And about what you've said and what you've promised over their lives. And I rebind those lies and we rebuke those. And we replace them with the truth through the word of God. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. God, help us to be people that are passionate about studying and living and knowing and speaking truth over our circumstances, God. We also know that the enemy loves to accuse and hold us down by the mistakes that we've made. And to call us, not by our name, 
but by our sin. And we rebuke him from that. And I pray that whom the Son has set free is free indeed. I proclaim that over all of us. That all of our past mistakes, if we've asked for forgiveness, they have been cast into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, you have removed our transgressions from us, God. And we thank you for that. We walk away from our past. We walk away from those accusations. And we walk to the high calling that we have in you, God. And then, Father, lastly, we thank you for, for helping us understand that there is an enemy that wants to destroy us, God, who uses our own pride, our own pride that's in us against us to bring destruction. And so, Lord, we choose to humble ourselves. We choose to take a knee and say, not my will, your will be done. Lord, we choose to make you our Lord and Savior. We allow your ranking to be over us, that we choose to let you be general and Lord over our lives, God. And we overcome the enemy by that, Father. I thank you for that. Lord, I also pray for this week. We have an election coming up in our our, our nation, it's an important election. And I know that there are a lot of people that are worried about this election. They're concerned about what's going to happen if, if Biden wins or what's going to happen if Trump wins and on and on and on. And, and they're like, what do we do? What do we do? Here's the answer. The answer is humility, my friend. The answer is humility. God, your word said that if my people who are called by my name would just humble themselves would just humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayers and I will heal their land. Father, help us to lead the way in our community, not in political activism, but in humility, in humility of putting you first and putting your ways and your will first in our lives, God. That will heal our land faster than anyone. I thank you for that. I, we love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness that you showed us, God. Thank you for letting us get back together as a church in person once again, Lord. We thank you for all that you're doing. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's children that believe that say a big amen. 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 Hallelujah.